Eugene Peterson said, this is not the nativity story you grew up with. But it is the nativity story all the same. It's not the nativity that we're used to. Can you imagine? Imagine for a moment if Hallmark tapped into Revelation 12, verses 1 through 6. I mean, that's when you walk into the store and they say, oh, um, this is our Stephen King line of religious cards. It's not a big seller. Nobody really buys these. This is Stephen King's vivid depiction of Christmas. Or imagine breaking out this as the nativity scene. You're decorating the house. The little kids have gathered up. And you got this. This is your nativity. You got kids saying, what's that, mommy? Oh, that, that's a woman giving birth to a child. What? What's that? Mommy, what does that have to do with Christmas? That's the red dragon with his yellow eyes and his sharp teeth and gaping mouth. You're not going to sell a lot of those nativities, are you? But this is the nativity story. In our daily life, right now, two parallel histories occurring simultaneously. One on earth, one in heaven. That's why when I said, Nicole, you didn't hear me, I was, making, I was talking about you while you were getting changed. We saw that. We saw her get baptized here on earth. And we rejoiced. But what we didn't see is what's taking place in the heavens. And so I'm saying that in daily life, there's always two parallel histories occurring simultaneously. There's all the stuff that we see that's going on here on earth, and there's everything that we don't see or oftentimes don't see. John got to see it because God gave him a vision. Revelation views those parallel universes together. That's why it's so confusing for us. Because we only see on this plane, but Revelation pulls back the veil and lets us peer into the heavens. And it's confusing to us. When you look around our country right now, you see all kinds of brokenness. You look around the world, all kinds of suffering, all kinds of problems, all kinds of inequalities, all kinds of arguments, all kinds of evil, all kinds of hatred, all kinds of suffering. And people and experts and research seeks to try to explain the causes for all, these, all the brokenness that we see in the world. And they use categories to try to define our problems. Sociological categories, psychological categories, political categories, racial categories. 
We, we seek to understand our problems as a society. People give a lot of time and attention to this. There's a lot of research that goes into these things. And a lot of the research that they develop to try to explain societal problems is, has some truth to it. It's, it's accurate. But oftentimes, it fails to include any sense of a spiritual category. And in so doing, we miss the ultimate solution for society's problems. Because God doesn't describe all of society's problems strictly in those categories that we understand. He describes them in categories that we're uncomfortable with when he pulls back the veil and shows us like he's doing in Revelation 12. If our analysis of society's challenges is superficial, if it doesn't probe deep enough in order to get a real solution, then the solutions that we propose will be superficial as well. That's, that's the problem with secular theory. It's not that it's never true. It's not that you can't learn anything from it. It's that ultimately it doesn't offer a fundamental solution because it doesn't address the fundamental problem. If our, if our analysis of our, of our challenges is void or absent of God and the Scripture, then the solution that's offered will ultimately be a shallow one, a superficial one. God didn't send Jesus at Christmas knowing that we would be able to solve our problems, right? He knew that we couldn't solve these problems. And that's why we celebrate Christmas, because he sent God to us. He sent God to get us. John would tell us, if your analysis of world problems is absent of God or absent of the devil, you'll be ineffective at identifying. The real problem. And your answer will be superficial. So, so if you're a Christian, you have to believe in things that are hard to believe in. You have to believe in the devil. You have to believe in Satan. Some of you are sitting here like this. You're, you're sitting here and you're like, I can't, I can't believe he's up there. Does he really believe this? That's like a fairy tale. This is apocalyptic 
It seeks to analyze things from God's viewpoint. It seeks to bring analysis from the throne room of heaven, which is something that we have a hard time understanding. Behind all the world's suffering is a great conflict. And it's pictured right here. That doesn't mean that we don't contribute to some of it. What I'm saying is what the Bible teaches us is fundamentally behind all of the fallenness of this world is a great conflict. And that conflict exists between God and the Bible refers to him as Satan or the devil. So if you don't have a category for Satan, if you don't have a category for God, then you cannot possibly understand what is really going on with the world. That's what the Bible would say. You can't understand the world's brokenness. You can't understand the problems that we have with strictly sociological or scientific categories. You can't understand the meaning of life. You won't be able to understand how all of this fits together and how it fits together to show God's intentions and plans to redeem all of creation. You won't understand Christmas ultimately. You won't get in on its simple beauty if you don't have a category for the massive conflict that exists between God and the devil. And Revelation 12 is pulling back the curtain, giving us a glimpse of Christmas from somewhere far beyond Andromeda. This is Christmas from the viewpoint of the angels. The characters are radically different than the characters of our typical gospel story, right? No shepherds in this one, no wise men, no evil king who wants to murder infants. The characters we do see, though, are this woman, a baby, and a red dragon. What are we to make of this? Can he help me? That's you speaking. I'll say, God, help me. But one of the things that, that this does, there's a lot here. We're not going to get into all of it. But what I, what I desire for us as a church is that as we read the Word, as we read God's Word, that our Bibles would start to come together for us. That we would start to see that, yeah, this is one book with one purpose. It, 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 it seeks to tell us all about the one that Jesus sent to save sinners. So it's, it's either in the Old Testament pointing towards Christ or in the New Testament reflecting on Christ's work. But Jesus holds this whole thing together. And I want us to be able to see that. John tells us that there was a great sign. It says, and a great sign appeared. John uses this language, sign. A spectacle appeared. There's a sense in which you might say it appeared in the sky. It was a sign. A spectacle. Remember when we were talking about, in, in John, when we were preaching through that, Jesus performed signs or miracles. And we said that signs, the meaning isn't in the sign uh, in and of itself. 
right? That the sign, when Jesus did these miracles, it wasn't just, hey, we're out of, we're out of wine. This is a real important party. I'm going to be embarrassed. Let's turn the water into wine. And that's, that's the, the sum total of, of what was happening there. One party in, in a Jewish town thousands of years ago didn't run out of wine. That's not the point. It, it points to something more significant. It points to the fact that, that who is Jesus? You're supposed to ask, who is this person that turns water into wine? And then John fits it with his overall purpose. He's telling you all about Jesus, that you might believe in him and have life in his name. Signs point to things. So this is a sign, a red octagon with the letters S-T-O-P means something as a sign because we've agreed to attribute meaning to it. We've agreed that a red octagon with those letters on it means as you approach an intersection, you should come to a halt or else. Right? Something's going to happen. Maybe. Or, or kill somebody in an accident. But you see, the sign, the, the meaning isn't in the metal itself. It's not in the red itself. It's not in the letters itself. It's in what we've attributed. It points to something. That's the significance. The significance. All right? So we need to ask ourselves, what is the significance of the woman, the baby, and the dragon? What's, what do these things point to? Let's look at the woman. Before we learn that she's pregnant, we get a description of her. She's pregnant, and we know with a special baby, which would make us think that this is Mary. In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. The woman is the mother of Israel, or we might say the mother of God's people. The symbolism of light that surrounds her, surrounds her. There's all kinds of light and glory surrounding her. She's clothed with the sun. She's clothed with the sun, and she has the moon for shoes. And she's got 12, a 12-starred 12 crown. 12, what's that mean? If, you've, if you're reading your Bible, you know you've run across 12 before. 12 stars in her crown, referencing... Certainly, 12 tribes of Israel. So you got that in the Old Testament. But that's not the only, the only 12 you see in the Scripture. That We know that, the, that heaven's foundation is written. The foundation stones have the names of another 12 people. It's not the tribes of Israel. Do you know who it is? The apostles. It's apostles. So the names of the apostles, foundation, 12 of them. And then we also know that the gates of heaven... The gates of heaven are inscribed. So when you walk through heaven, do you believe that one day it's going to happen to you as real as you're sitting here right now? If you're in Christ, you're going to pass through the gates of heaven and you're going to see what I'm describing. And what you'll see is these massive gates with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So 12 means a lot in scripture. And John knows that and he's, he's signaling that. He's signing that to us. If you, if you remember the story of Joseph, do you remember the story of Joseph? You learned that. Some of you learned it in Sunday school. Some of the kids have learned the story of Joseph. But if you remember the story of Joseph. Joseph got into trouble with his brothers because he had these dreams. Here comes the dreamer, they said. He had these dreams. And his dreams had a way of uplifting him and lowering everyone else. I, Joseph was a proud guy. 
His father loved him better than the rest of his brothers. He got to wear that really fancy coat. See, he's full of himself. He's one of the youngest. He's full of himself, gifted probably, and his brothers hate him for it. But he had this one dream. He had a dream where the son, his father Jacob, was bowing down to him. And the moon, you see the reference here, right? Sun, moon. And the moon, his mother, Rachel, was bowing down to him. And his 11 brothers were the stars. And they all bowed down to him as well. That ticked them off so bad that they sold him into slavery. Through his suffering, their lives would be spared. The dream was true. So the woman represents the people of God. If, if what I did right there seems like, well, I'd, no, I'd never be able to do that. You can do that. You don't, need, you don't need advanced degrees to study the Word. One of the things I love about our spiritual fitness class that we just taught, there's like 10 people in this, and one of the things we taught them, we're just teaching them basically how to read and get something from the Bible. And if you learn to do that, your, life, your spiritual life can be revolutionized. You will become spiritually fit if you just stick your nose into God's word and pray and invite the Spirit of God. You, just, you say, open up my eyes, warm my heart, mold my will. And God would love to answer that prayer. I, I really hope that in the new year, it's like some of you, uh, and myself included, like I've got... I've got these spiritual fitness goals that are, I've got these physical fitness goals that are kind of on hold between Thanksgiving and, and Christmas. I'm just like, I, I felt like I was even talking to the Lord about it because I'm like, I'm taking every opportunity to go all in. Somebody brought those like chocolate covered pretzels with the sprinkles. And I thought, you know what? I don't have to eat those right now. Like I don't, I don't have to just dive in and it wouldn't be wrong if I did, but I'm not eating one. I'm not eating two. I'm going three, four, five deep on these things because it's Christmas. You guys can join me. We're going to, we're going to lower the standard at Christmas, but then it happens, right? New Year's comes, you get on a scale And then we start with our New Year's resolutions that last us usually about two weeks. We go hard into our New Year's resolutions. What I hope for even more than physical fitness in this church, physical fitness is of some value. You should consider it. Spiritual fitness. And spiritual fitness comes from people who will just, even if it's just five minutes a day, open up the word of God and say, God, I need you. Would you speak to me? Would you help me to grow as a disciple? And he will do it. I hope that's true for us as we head into the new year. So we got the woman. We got a red dragon. It says another sign. Another sign appeared in heaven. Verse 3. What was it? Behold, a great dragon. A great red dragon. Other places of scripture, the language that is used in the Old Testament, Leviathan. You ever see that in scripture? Leviathan, monster of the deep. 
always standard, standard terminology for all that opposes God, the enemy of God. That's who this dragon is. That's who Leviathan is. That's who the monster of the deep. Verse 9, which we didn't read, but you can fast forward there. And the great dragon was thrown down. We're going to get an identification of who the dragon is. It's, it's real clear. John makes it crystal clear. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. There he is. It's clear. Behind all that opposes God is Satan. Matthew 16, memorable passage of scripture. You might not know Matthew 16, but you probably know the story. Jesus is walking and talking with the disciples. And, and as they're walking and talking, he turns to the disciples and he says, who does everybody say that I am? What does everybody say? And one of them says, um, some people say you're John the Baptist. And then somebody else says, so, I heard somebody say the other day that you were Elijah. And then uh, someone else said, some people say that you're the prophet Jeremiah. And Jesus is just listening to him. And then he asks a really penetrating question. Who do you not what does everybody else say? What do you say? Who do you say that I am? That's the most important question anybody will ever ask you. It doesn't matter what everybody else thinks about Jesus. It doesn't matter if your mom and dad think something about Jesus. You ain't riding in on their coattails. What do you think about Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? Well, that's not the point. Let me continue with the story. Peter answers. Peter jumps right out. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. And Jesus looks at him and says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Because flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. God revealed that to you. And he said, and that's why I call you Peter, Petra, rock. Because on this rock, on you, I'm going to build my church. And you talk about a powerful moment. You go home, you never forget that day. Remember that day when everybody didn't know who Jesus was and Jesus turned and said, who am I? And I was like, you're the Christ, the son of God. And, and he said, I didn't even learn that. And I didn't, but God, he showed me. Conversation changes. Same conversation. They continue walking along. He just blessed Peter. They continue walking along. And Jesus describes as they're walking along, you know, we're headed to Jerusalem. And when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, be rejected. You know the religious leaders don't like me, guys. You know that. We've seen that. When we get there, I'm going, to be, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die on a cross. And then I'm going to rise from the dead. Peter. It's, scripture says he pulls Jesus aside. 
and says, no. He's probably, he's probably thinking, I got the answers right. Oh, Jesus, get over here. Don't say that to these guys. What are you talking about? That is ne- no. You are not going to be rejected. You are not going to die. And Jesus, in front of the disciples, says some famous words. Get behind me, Satan. Wait a second. You just said some really kind things about me. Jesus didn't say, get behind me, Peter. You're acting like Satan. He said, get behind me, Satan. How could he do that? Did Peter turn into Satan? Did it was like a scene from the exorcist. He was like upheld, you know, one minute God revealing him to these things to him. And in the next moment, his head spinning and his eyes are all twisted and he's turned into Satan. No. That's not what happened. It was Peter, just like you, just like Peter answered the other question, Peter answered this question. But to Jesus, it was so wrongheaded. It was so ill-advised. It was so, so deviant from God's plan to short-circuit the cross that Jesus referred to him as Satan, the one who opposes God. It was so ill-advised that Jesus understands the voice behind Peter's voice to be the voice of Satan. And then Jesus said to him, you're not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. So in other words, to be satanic is to not set your heart on the things of God, but to set your heart on the things of man. Are you feeling me? In other words, Jesus would have referred to you as Satan at times in your life as well, because there have been times where you and I have not set our mind on the things of God, but we have set them on the things of of man and Jesus says that's satanic. Some of us are more influenced by more shaped and more influenced by culture than we are by Christ. Some of us are more influenced by social media or our political viewpoint than we are God's word. Man, in Chester County, right here where we live, we got a lot of Republicans, we got a lot of Democrats. The challenge for us as a church is that we would allow the word of God and Jesus to be the priority over our lives and not other things. Is there truth in some other things? Yes, there is. Is it the ultimate, fundamental, foundational truth? No, it's not. If it comes to your political view and the Bible, and one of them has to change, it's not the Bible. Now look at the drama. We're moving moving here. Look at the drama. There's the main characters. Not our normal nativity scene for sure. 
But let's look at the drama. First it says that the red dragon's tail swept down and it swept one-third of the stars out of the sky and they fell to the earth. And this is where we get into trouble with Revelation because some of you are wanting to figure out what that means, man. Like, I'm going to be looking for that sign in the sky. Like, when is that one-third of the stars going to fall out? Then I could be, you know, we could get knowledge on when Jesus is returning and the end times. And we use Revelation to crack the Bible code. Let me just help you with this. What's happening here is poetry. It's, it's poetry. And Hebrew poetry is oftentimes nature poetry. And so in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew poets would oftentimes speak of the hills dancing for joy and the trees clapping. And it's poetic. And in the same way, he's using poetic terminology or poetic phraseology to speak of the stars falling from the heaven. This is not modern science. We're not supposed to look for one third of the stars falling from the sky at some point any more that we should go searching the hills for dancing hills or for clapping trees. This is a way of saying that when God acts in a certain way, all of nature rejoices. The whole earth, we're told, is full of his glory. And we're also told and can understand that when there is tragedy and rebellion, then all of nature suffers under the curse. And the rest of the drama is revolting. The woman's in the agony of childbirth. I mean, you guys, you're supposed to picture this. Legs in the stirrups, ready to deliver. But between her legs is a dragon. Mouth open. Ready for when the baby pops out to devour it. If you're uncomfortable with that imagery, that's what you should be. That's the intent of the writer. That's the genre. You're supposed to be uncomfortable by this. You're supposed to say, oh, that's gross. That is grotesque. War is always grotesque. And this is a depiction of the greatest war ever fought, the war between God and Satan for your soul. It's grotesque. It's gross. It's revolting. It's the conflict of the heavenlies. But we, we see something. It doesn't last long because it says that she gives birth to a male child, one who's going to rule over the nations, one who is king over all. But the child, we're told in verse 5, was caught up to God and to his throne. There you get the entire sum total of Jesus' life in one, not even a sentence, in a phrase. Caught up to God and to his throne. We got a baby born, caught up to God and to his throne. We've moved in that sentence from, from the birth of Christ to the life of Christ, the suffering of Christ, crucifixion of Christ, resurrection of Christ, exaltation, uh, ascension of Christ, exaltation of Christ. There it is, bam. Your whole Bible in one phrase. It says that on earth a baby is born. A king gets wind of it. On earth the baby is born. A king gets wind of it. A chase ensues. In heaven the great invasion had begun. A daring raid by the ruler of all forces for good right into the seat. The universe's seat of evil. The flight into Egypt, 
But Herod doesn't get the baby. Behind Herod is the dragon. The attempt in Luke 4 to push Jesus over a cliff. Do you remember? They, 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 the mob gathered and they want to push him over a cliff. But it says he slipped through the crowd. That angry mob, behind that Jewish mob, is the red dragon. The attempt to stone Jesus in, nine, in John 8. Behind, behind that attempt, the red dragon. Determination to send Jesus to the cross. We got some players Pilate, does he have any blame to bear? Do the Jewish leaders and, and Jewish people have any responsibility to bear? Does Herod have any responsibility? Yes, but behind them all is what the scriptures tell us. The red dragon, all that is opposed to God and his plan to redeem humanity. Behind the red dragon, though, who's behind the red dragon? Who's behind the red dragon? God. God. Because he's the sovereign king and creator and ruler of all. And he is bringing to pass his purposes, even in the death of his son, to bring about our redemption, our salvation. I want to close. I'll ask the band to return. I want to read something to you. It'll take me just a few minutes. When I read it, I thought, I can't tell it better than this. Can you guys listen for a few more minutes? This is called The Angel's Viewpoint. The Angel's Point of View. It's written by J.B. Phillips, and I think it summarizes what I've tried to say. You got to put your lid, close your eyes if it helps. I want to tell you this is a story. Once upon a time, a very young angel was being shown around the splendors and glories of the universes by a senior and experienced angel. To tell the truth, the little angel was beginning to be tired and a little bored. He had been shown whirling galaxies and blazing suns, and to his mind, there seemed to be an awful lot of it all. Finally, he was shown the galaxy of which our planetary system is but a small part. And as the true of them drew near to the star, which we call our sun, and to its circling planets, the senior angel pointed to a small and rather insignificant sphere turning very slowly on its axis. It looked as dull as a dirty tennis ball to the little angel, whose mind was filled with the size and the glory of what he had seen. I want you to watch that one in particular, said the senior angel. Well, it looks very small and rather dirty to me, said the little angel. What's special about that one? That, replied his senior solemnly, is the visited planet. Visit, said the little one. You don't mean visited by Indeed I do. That ball, which I have no doubt looks to you small and insignificant and not perhaps over clean, has been visited by our Prince of Glory. At these words he bowed his head reverently and the little angel's face wrinkled in disgust. Do you mean to tell me, he said, that he stooped so low as to be one of, become one of those creeping, crawling creatures of that floating ball? I do. And I don't think he would like you to call them creeping, crawling creatures in that tone of voice. 
For strange as it may seem to us, he loves them. He went down to visit them, to lift them up, to become like him. The little angel looked blank. Such, such a thought was almost beyond his comprehension. Close your eyes for a moment, said the senior angel, and we will go back in what they call time. While the little angel's eyes were closed and the two of them moved nearer to the spinning ball, it stopped its spinning, spun backward quite fast for a while, and then slowly resumed its usual rotation. Now look, and as the little angel did as he was told, there appeared here and there on the dull surface of the globe little flashes of light. Some merely momentary, some persisting for quite a time. What am I seeing now? queried the little angel. You're watching this little world as it was some thousands of years ago. Every flash and glow of light that you see is something of the Father's knowledge and wisdom breaking into the minds and hearts of people who live upon the earth. Not many people you see can hear his voice or understand what he says, even though he's speaking gently and quietly to them all the time. Why are they so blind and deaf and stupid? Said the junior angel. It's not for us to judge them. We who live in the splendor have no idea what it is to live in the dark. But watch, for in a moment you will see something truly wonderful. The earth went on turning and circling around the sun, and then, quite suddenly, in the upper half of the globe, there appeared a light, tiny but so bright in its intensity that the angels hid their eyes. I think I can guess, said the little angel in a low voice. That was the visit, wasn't it? Yes, that was the visit. The light himself went down there and lived among them. Open your eyes now. The dazzling light has gone. The prince has returned to his home of light. But watch the earth now. And as they looked in place of the dazzling light, there was a bright glow which throbbed and pulsated. And then as the earth turned many times, little points of light spread out. A few flickered and died, but for the most part, the lights burned steadily. And as they continued to watch, in many parts of the globe, there was a glow. You see what is happening asked the senior angel the bright glow is the company of loyal men and women he left behind and with his help they spread the glow and now lights begin to shine all over the earth yes yes the little angel said impatiently but how does it end will the little lights join up with one another will it all be light as it is in heaven his senior shook his head we simply don't know he replied the end is not yet. But now I am sure you can see why this little ball is so important. He has visited it. Yes, I see, though I don't understand. I shall never forget that this is the visited planet. Beyond the comprehension of angels is the gospel story. The angels long to they look into these things and they long to understand almost beyond our comprehension. But what we've read today is the key to understanding Christmas. It's the key to understanding the gospel, the foundation of our faith. As a Christian, I believe that we live in parallel worlds, one that is filled with trees and lakes and hills and iPhones and shepherds watching their flocks at night. One, though, the other has angels and demons and somewhere out there places called heaven and hell. And one night 
in the cold, in the dark, among the hills of Bethlehem, those two worlds had a dramatic collision. God, who has no beginning or end, entered into time and space. God, who has no boundaries, received upon himself the boundary of a skin and, and bones and became a baby and embraced the restraints of death. Christmas is like no other story. When Christ was born, the angels couldn't hold back. They broke out in song, disturbing a small group of shepherds here on earth. Indeed, disturbing the entire universe. And its disturbance has reverberated all the way to you and me. Christmas, it's a simple beauty with a cosmic glory. Amen. Let's stand and worship.